0: Welcome to the November 2017 issue of the Rehab Cast. This is the official podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. This is kind of our mass casualty edition, although I doubt it's the last time we'll be visiting this topic. Gun violence, in particular, and the fields of medicine that must respond in its aftermath are in the news more than ever, with the horrific Las Vegas shooting that left 58 dead and over 500 injured. There's a lot of rehabilitation ahead for a lot of people. Mind you, even in a normal day in the United States, 93 people will die by a bullet. Over double that number will suffer non-fatal firearm wounds. Later on, we'll hear from NYU researcher Dr. Hilary Bertisch about her firearm-related TBI study that's published in the November issue of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Now, there hasn't been much federally funded firearms research for over 20 years now. That's a situation that traces back to a battle between an Arkansas congressional representative named Jay Dickey and Mark Rosenberg, who at that time was the head of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Dr. Rosenberg was spearheading an aggressive new line of research on violence as a disease process within our society, a line of inquiry that had just started yielding important new findings. Among them, the fact that guns in the home were more likely to increase the risk of a homicide. This data riled the National Rifle Association and the NRA-backed Representative Dickey, who attached a provision to a 1996 omnibus spending bill that specifically revoked the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control's funding. And furthermore, it instructed the CDC to avoid any activities that advocated or promoted gun control. The consensus view is that the legislative language definitely did not actually prohibit the CDC from conducting gun violence research. But after losing this big showdown in Congress, every CDC director since has steered the agency away from firearms research for fear of facing further budget cuts. Perhaps relatedly, the mind-space guns occupy in American culture is largely dominated by entertainment. TV, movies, and popular books as well uh, where we aren't treated to the aftermath. The gory details of what happens in the weeks, months, and years following gunshot wounds. On the screen, the violence is encapsulated in a flashy action scene And the characters who are shot face one of two fates, life or death. We don't learn much more. The same has long been true of how real-life shootings are portrayed, whether mass shootings or more discriminating crimes. There's an intense flash of media interest, a national dialogue if the shooting tallied enough victims, and then the national storyline moves on to the next scene. Lately, though, we're seeing some in-depth reporting of the aftermath start to break through. The Huffington Post's long-form magazine channel called Highline published a high-impact feature this spring called What Bullets Do to Bodies. The subtitle cuts right to the provocative thesis. The gun debate would change in an instant if Americans witnessed the horror that trauma surgeons confront every day. Writer Jason Fagon spent significant time with Dr. Amy Goldberg, the chair of Temple University's Department of Surgery. Temple is situated in North Philadelphia, home to some of the country's worst gun violence. In fact, Temple treated 450 gunshot traumas in 2016 alone. But it was a shooting in a faraway suburbia, well away from the problems of inner cities that Dr. Goldberg thought would have changed the tide. Here's a passage from that powerful article. As a country, Dr. Goldberg said, we lost our teachable moment. She started talking about the 2012 murder of 20 schoolchildren and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Goldberg said that if people had been shown the autopsy photos of the kids, the gun debate would have been transformed. Quote, the fact that not a single one of those kids was able to be transported to a hospital tells me that they were not just dead, but really, really, really dead. Ten-year-old kids, riddled with bullets, dead as doornails, end quote. Her voice rose. She said people have to confront the physical reality of gun violence without the polite filters. Quote, the country won't be ready for it, but that's what needs to happen. That's the only chance at all for this ever to be reversed. Now, Fogone does detail exactly what bullets do to bodies, telling the stories of people who've gone through Temple as patients and how Dr. Goldberg and her team are making valiant efforts to keep them from coming back as victims yet again. Dr. Liana Wen, Baltimore's health commissioner, published an excellent New York Times op-ed a few months later following the shooting of Congressman Steve Scalise of Louisiana And that article actually carried the very same arresting headline, What Bullets Do to Bodies. I encourage you to read that one, too. She writes about the incredible damage caused by expanding bullets commonly used in semi-automatic weapons, which fragment and explode, destroying as much living tissue as possible. Traumatology is a growing field of study involving a wide array of specialties involved in trauma care, including rehabilitation medicine. A narrative review published in the September issue of PM&R looks closely at rehabilitation traumatology, a small but growing area of investigation. It's small enough that the review actually turned up only 37 relevant papers. Dr. Donna Bloodworth and her colleagues at Baylor explain the role physiatry plays at each stage of the trauma continuum, starting at the very beginning. They write, In our hospital system, the chief of PM&R is contacted with information if there has been a natural or man-made disaster. It is not unusual for rehabilitation traumatologists to round on the media news stations, particularly during large disasters. Since the county hospital is responsible as first responders to disasters, we expect victims of most shootings, trauma, and large motor vehicle accidents on the news to come to one of two Level 1 trauma facilities in the city. For example, during Hurricane Katrina, we were pre-rounding on the news coming in from Louisiana in anticipation of the possibility that evacuees would be rescued to Houston. Bloodworth previously published in 2007 about the rehabilitation diagnoses they saw in the aftermath of Katrina. Approximately 27,000 people were eventually housed and fed in the Astrodome after being evacuated from the New Orleans Superdome. Among the 239 patients, there were 289 PMNR related conditions. As far as the importance of rehabilitation traumatology, they explain how the physiatrist plays a key role in the ongoing secondary survey for the trauma patient. The first time is when the physiatrist is consulted, and the second time is when the patient comes to inpatient rehabilitation. They say they found several unrecognized neurologic and musculoskeletal injuries through this process by using ultrasound to aid in diagnosis, uh, including missing bullets and foreign objects caused by unrecognized injuries, such as splinters and glass, hematomas, pus pockets, occult hairline fractures, They've also been consulted to evaluate for occult neurotrauma, including penetrating and avulsive root lesions, plexopathies, and mononeuropathies. They say there should be a high suspicion for neurotrauma when there are traction and penetrating injuries and compression injuries from pseudoaneurysms, hematomas, pus pockets, and compartment syndrome. The paper outlines how trauma centers can create a rehabilitation traumatology program so that rehab is not an afterthought. In
1: today's Boston Marathon,
0: I'm looking for Jeff Bowman.
1: So I gotta tell you, there was an explosion, and your legs, they're gone, bro.
2: I'm sorry. You
1: don't owe me anything. So, Jeff, we're gonna take these bandages off? Everybody wants to see ya. He's a real hero, my son. How are you feeling, Jeff? What are you doing?
2: Uh, talking to you. What are you doing?
0: Dancing. That's a clip from Stronger, the Hollywood film treatment of the Boston bombing, which is now in theaters. It centers on the struggle of Jeff Bowman, who lost both legs in the bombing. He's instantly recognizable by most as the man being assisted out of that scene in a wheelchair by the cowboy hat wearing Carlos Arredondo. At first, you know, I was uh,
1: just dealing with my personal injury and, and trying to focus on who i was going to be and who what my what my new life was gonna entail is you know getting moving forward so i was really really focused on that coming right out of the hospital and even in the hospital so but the boston strong stuff started to resonate when i was reading all the stuff that people were sending me and, and i could just feel the connection through all the, all this positivity that was being sent my way it was really magical,
0: and it did, you know, kind of force me to get up and get moving. Bowman's medical team and Spalding Rehab itself are featured in the movie. Here's Jake Gillian Hall, who plays Bowman in the movie, speaking about that with CNN's Jake Tapper.
1: I, I knew that I would never get close to the, understanding the pain that he had gone through, but I knew that I would try and put as much as I could into it to understand, and I, I just spent time, you know, watching him talking to him, talking to other people who are suffering from injuries like his amputees, Working with the doctors and nurses that you know helped him recover, many all of whom played themselves in the film. Yeah, we have Dr. Kalish, his surgeon, who amputated Jeff's legs, and uh, Michelle, his PT, and Odessa, his intensive care nurse. The Rottweiler who's incredible, <laughs> and um, the Martino brothers, who designed the top part of his prosthetics, of his Autobot, Genium legs, and you know, so we have all of those people in there. And I spent and David Gordon Green, the director, and I spent a lot of time with them beforehand. We've always said about this movie, this movie is about a guy who learns how to take a few steps and the enormous journey that he has to, you know, where he has to go to get there. And it is full of pain, but, you know, it's also full of laughter. And the thing that made me fall in love with this character and playing him, and ultimately when I met Jeff, it made me love him so much is his sense of humor. Yeah, and, that really you know, comes across. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that is what we tried to get as well. But you can't shy away from the pain because y- you don't want to shy away from the joy either. And I think, you know, life is filled with both. And if you, you know cut corners one place, you're going to have to cut corners the other. And I think an audience can feel that.
0: A movie that's worth your time, and certainly one for Boston in particular to be proud of. Now for our featured interview, we have Hilary Bertish. She's a senior psychologist and clinical assistant professor for Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. She sees a range of neurological diagnoses, but certainly a lot of TBI. For most folks in rehab, treating gunshot wounds is fortunately a smaller percentage of the caseload that we see, but they do have some unique characteristics, as Dr. Pertish delves into with her article. Her paper, published in the archives of PM&R's November issue, is Characteristics of Firearm Brain Injury Survivors in the Traumatic Brain Injury Model Systems National Database, a Comparison of Assault and Self-Inflicted Injury Survivors. So Dr. Pratish, tell us about the motivations that drove you and your research colleagues to do this TBI model systems database study.
2: Okay, can I assume that the audience knows what the model systems database is, or should I give an overview a little bit of what that data set is like?
0: An overview sounds great.
2: So my center, NYU Rusk Rehabilitation, is part of the Model Systems Program, which is sponsored by NIDLER, the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. We are one of 16 centers. We just got refunded. And basically, it's a national data set that has been uh, going on since the 1980s, where Data is gathered from anybody that sustains a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury from uh, any of a number of etiologies and is transported to one of the participating sites. So in terms of uh, this particular study, my own background is both in TBI rehabilitation and also in psychiatry. So our original investigation was actually a study of suicidality within the uh, TBI model systems database. And we presented that as a poster uh, about three years ago at the AACN conference. One of the most interesting findings from that poster was that suicidality in terms of the etiology of injury was highly correlated uh, with those who had firearm injury. And from that, you know. From that starting point, uh, we decided that firearm injury, in and of itself, is a very understudied subgroup of traumatic brain injury, and certainly worthwhile of looking into further and characterizing for the purposes of uh, both prevention and rehabilitation. So that was the direction that the study took, and you know produced the paper that that you see here today.
0: You were interested more so in that suicide population in particular. Was that the main motivation?
2: That was the beginning, but I think as that unfolded, um, and you know, we, we did find a uh, number of other variables associated with suicidality per se, but I think like so many other researchers, the subgroup of those who sustained penetrating injury, i.e, in this case firearm injury, are, are so understudied that looking at the suicidality component brought to light this subgroup of, of TBI patients that really haven't been looked at much in the literature. So we decided that that was you know just as important as looking at the suicidality piece, and I think what happened in the manuscript is that there's you know an intersection of the two in terms of our findings.
0: So when folks think about firearm deaths in general, I think many of us tend to think of perhaps the flashiest forms ranging from violence in the streets to mass gun carnage like we've seen recently. But the vast majority of firearm deaths are suicide related, right?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I think that there are a good number of suicide Deaths. I think that what we what really emerged in this paper is that it is specific to a certain demographic. Uh, so what we found, for example, is that self-inflicted injuries, you know, which again encompasses both um, accidental and intentional injuries, are um, more prevalent in certain parts of the country among people with certain educational levels, certain uh, ethnic backgrounds, and so I think that. Um, it's not, you know, in terms of thinking about it uh, with regard to prevention or rehabilitation, it's not pervasive. You know, it's not that this it certainly could happen in, you know, any region or, or with any kind of a person. But I think that it's specific to certain areas and larger numbers.
0: You guys did a really good job up top characterizing the current state of firearm-related TBI research. Certainly it's small and divided up into different populations that can make it harder to use. For example, there's a sizable military literature that may not have great relevance to civilian injuries. Uh, Could you provide the audience a little bit of the background?
2: You know it's interesting, uh, one of the reasons I think that there's so little literature on firearm injury, especially in the civilian population, you 're absolutely correct that there's more in the military population. Um, but I think that there's very little funding for firearm in- studies of firearm injury and and you know in large part that's political. There is a paper I referenced uh, in my manuscript um, that was published 2013 in the Journal of Injury Prevention that talks a little bit about the barriers to research on this subgroup, uh, again, in the civilian population. Um, So I think that there's funding barriers, but I also think that there's, uh, you know, in terms of the numbers of people that come in with this type of injury, most people don't tend to survive. So. Mm -hmm. So, in trying to do you know uh, any kind of meaningful study on on people who have sustained this type of injury, even within my paper, that you know the model systems database has now uh, over fifteen thousand people entered since since uh, the 1980s, and we were able to pull together just several hundred of those that the this type of injury. So, I think the reason it isn't studied more uh, comprehensively is is multifaceted. I probably should also say that one of the, um, you know, with reference to what you mentioned before, the mass shootings that have been unfortunately happening now, you know, for so many years, including, you know, the most recent one in in Las Vegas, uh, the people included in this particular study um, were not victims of mass shootings. So I don't know of any research, you know, on that particular subpopulation.
0: Certainly in mass shootings we're going to see a variety of injuries, many deaths to begin with, and fortunately bullets hitting the head are going to make up a smaller segment of the wounded population in any given event, and an even smaller slice of those would happen to be treated at any one of the TBI model system centers. Now when it comes to analyzing the model systems database, I suppose pulling out mass shooting survivors might be a bit of a challenge. There's probably not going to be a, a particular data tag for that, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, though I have heard of you know certainly of studies um, of of not necessarily firearm injury, but but other kinds of studies where people have looked at major disasters, you know, um, earthquakes in Haiti or or responses to September eleventh. So, it, it's possible. I think I think to do that. I don't know that in the model systems database the. Um, the characterization of the injury is to that level of detail. I think we have assault and self-inflicted, and that's generally the way that they're um, split apart. But I do you know it makes you wonder, as, as unfortunately many more of these incidents are happening and also many more people are surviving these types of injuries,
0: if we'll be seeing
2: more of that both in um, you know, our clinical practices and also in, in large national databases like the model systems.
0: Yeah, so for example, here at Shepherd Center, while still quite rare, I have treated at least one terrorist incident survivor uh, and a survivor from a well-publicized mass shooting event here in the southern states. It certainly depends on how many patients you're treating in the first place as to whether you're going to see that at all, although I fear we're going to be seeing more of it. Now, uh, I do want you to talk to us a little bit about what your practice is like there at NYU as a psychologist practicing at Rusk. Uh, Perhaps any experiences that you've had and characterizations that you can make about what it's like treating a gunshot victim TBI versus, say, more typical motor vehicle-related TBI patients.
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's a great question, Dr. Vox, and I and I do just maybe want to take this opportunity to um, give credit to my, my co-authors who helped me through this process of, of looking at the data and also sharing, uh, because they're from all over the country, their experiences, you know, the same kind of question you just asked with gunshot wound victims, and it's quite remarkable um, about... You, know, you, you were just mentioning some of your own patients and how they got injured. What you see or the types of injuries you see here in New York City where I am, um, even though the patients are still few and far between, is very different, let's say, than what you see uh, over at the Mayo Clinic in, in Minnesota and, and how the people got injured. So I think that really it's um, the regional component is a, is a large factor in, in who you're going to see, of course. Um, I am trained as a uh, clinical neuropsychologist. So a lot of the work that I do here when I'm not doing research is the assessment, um, neuropsychological assessment of these patients. And then on the neurorehabilitation front, you know, it's interesting. I think that they're treated uh, in many ways. As any patient who comes in with a traumatic brain injury, you know, the starting point is really the neurocognitive data and the functional impairments and how to start to help the person get back to life, uh, you know, from there or or to reach whatever goals that they have. One of the things we found in this paper is that the differences um, between the two subtypes of injury are most apparent at the time of injury, at the time of hospitalizations, so and and you know, throughout follow up the groups become more similar. So it just makes me wonder, you know, that that is what I've noticed clinically as well. I, I might not be able to pick out, you know, aside for anything obvious like scars or whatnot a person who had a gunshot injury versus a person who had another type of injury, or at least something more focal, um, in terms of the variety of patients I see here. So it is entirely possible that over time, um, you know, the picture does get cloudy when you're looking at it from the more functional or neuropsychological uh, perspective. Um, but, it, you know, at, at, uh, at the time of injury, they look very different.
0: Indeed, yeah, a lot more medical complexity with these penetrating injuries. Plenty of surprises uh, and complications are often in store.
2: Yeah, and just with a mortality rate of, of, you know, 90 to 95 percent right now, I mean, they're, they're very different until they're medically stable. I think that's when you, you can really, um, they're very distinct in terms of their presentations.
0: So here's a technical question for you related to the comparisons that you guys chose. Uh, y'all are comparing assault versus self-inflicted, but why not a comparison to, say, TBI generally or more particularly assault firearm TBI versus assault TBI without a firearm, for example?
2: You know, that's, a, that's actually a great question, and I do think that would be an excellent uh, follow-up paper. It's uh, kind of what we did in the original poster I described to you, looking at specifically suicidality across the different etiologies, and, you know, again, where the firearm subgroup really popped in terms of suicidality and other associated variables. Um, but, yeah, of course, I mean, I think especially for uh, the rehabilitation purposes, understanding what these patients look like at longer term follow up would be critical. Um, I think the original goal of this particular paper was really to to hone in on you know just the uh, firearm injury sample. But I do hope you know over time as people see more of a need for this, you know more expanded studies will be carried out perhaps by my group and you know, perhaps there could be intervention programs eventually that are implemented that could be looked at in terms of efficacy as well. So I think there's a lot more to do in this area if if the resources are available to do that.
0: In terms of staking out those comparisons, most firearm TBIs presenting to rehab, or at least the model systems, are in fact assault-related rather than self-inflicted for all but a couple of your centers, it appears.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm allowed to, uh, you know, talk specifically about which which centers, but there was uh, one center that was in a very rural uh, part of the United States uh, with a demographic that was mostly white. And then there was another center that the catchment area was quite large and, and extends across a, a good-sized part of the country, I think about four states, also in a in a more rural region, although, you know, there are some cities within the catchment area as well. So um you know I think that thinking about I mean people have more access to firearms you know in those in those regions of the country so so I think that it's not quite a surprise that that you might see in terms of suicide self-inflicted injury or or accidental injury you know if you're cleaning your gun and you shoot yourself accidentally um that it it occurs in those types of regions of the country Whereas it's also not a surprise that the, the assaults really occurred mostly in a, in a lower uh, SES, more urban type of a region. So a, a lot of what we found wasn't a surprise, but I think it was really one of the first times uh, there have been several other socio demographic studies before, but this is one of the first studies that really looks at the, the data on, on what we might already know about these subgroups.
0: Yeah, it definitely depends on where your center is situated. For example, practicing here in Georgia and receiving patients from throughout the Southeast, I feel like most of the self-inflicted injuries that I personally have seen are those accidental gun cleanings or intoxication plus shooting rabbits or bottles. Then an accident occurs. Uh, Certainly, we've seen assaults as well, whether law enforcement or criminal altercations. Those in general are just less frequent. Now, a lot of the TBI model systems are in more urban centers. Can you characterize demographically what you're seeing between self-inflicted versus assault firearm injury?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, And I I do want to point out that the numbers still are fairly small given the huge model system samples. So we only had uh, 310 assault cases throughout the whole data set and 89 only self-inflicted cases that met our criteria. But, you know, as expected, aside from the uh, geographic areas, the in, uh, the people who were victims of the assaults were more likely to be of minority status, less educated. Uh, they were also younger. They were more likely to be living with their parents, um, whereas the self-inflicted group, in addition to being from more rural areas and, and being white, um, were more likely to be married and, very interestingly, were more likely to uh, report significant alcohol abuse, which in the paper we thought might be, you know, integral to know as part of a rehabilitation plan. In terms of presentation at injury, uh, one of the more interesting findings we had was that the uh, assault victims had a um, higher GCS at admission as compared to the self-inflicted injury groups. There were no other differences in terms of post-traumatic amnesia or loss of consciousness, but... You know, that might indicate that the self-inflicted groups were more seriously injured at presentation as compared to the assault victims.
0: I'm sure being in close proximity to the weapon, if you're holding it yourself, has something to do with that.
2: If you you really, your intention is to to hurt yourself, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, again, as you've noted, it it depends on whether people will survive that initial post-trauma period or not. Uh, Of course, the vast majority do not, and we have to remind ourselves of that in rehab when thinking about the scope of this problem, that we're only seeing this tiny sliver of the initial survivors. Fortunately, people with penetrating gunshot trauma can benefit from many of the same neurorehabilitative techniques and modalities that we use for the neurotrauma population in general. Uh, But if you are treating a fair burden of gunshot wounds in your center, with its own set of social factors, it would stand to reason that you need to beef up the social services and psychological services that this population most uniquely needs. Uh, the center even has to recognize that this is a disease process in the community at large. I know, for example, that that's the, that's the position that they're taking at Temple, uh, which we mentioned earlier in the program. Uh, there are opportunities to reach out in terms of civic engagement, but the bottom line is that people suffering firearm TBI may have different needs than the rest of the TVI population.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, in terms of psychiatrically speaking, uh, we did also find that, you know, and and this was as expected, that in the self-inflicted injury group, um, there was more of a history of psychiatric presentation of suicidality, and eventually that returned over the follow-up period. they may have distinct psychiatric needs that may, you know, that, that do need to be incorporated into a rehab plan in addition to the, uh, you know, substance abuse and alcohol use that was reported. So I think that, uh, you know, the details of these groups are very different in how they might be handled in rehab, but also for prevention. You know, I mean, if you can prevent someone from shooting themselves in the head, that's, that's even better than, than having to treat them after the fact.
0: That's an activity that I think a lot of rehab specialists are increasingly involved in and should be involved in. We think about preventative care for internal medicine with regards to weight and blood pressure. Well, preventative care for rehabilitation traumatologists like us is engaging the communities where these injuries are occurring, working with civic groups and even legislatures that are trying to tackle the root causes of firearm trauma. So, so in terms of the next step in this line of research that you guys could take there at NYU, what are you thinking about next?
2: I like the idea that you suggested. I think it's important, you know, in terms of comparing these subgroups then to other ideologies and looking at presentation. Um, I think that if I could uh, make a more comprehensive set of recommendations for uh, both prevention and also treatment guidelines for this group, um, which was, you know, referenced to some extent in this paper, but nothing, uh, nothing too extensive as, you know, this was just more intended to be a preliminary paper. And then I think beyond that, to be honest, I think a lot of it depends on what the resources are, what the funding situation looks like and and where we can go from there. I do know other uh, investigators who are very interested in this population but have not been able to do more with that interest, uh, just given some of the logistics of studying this subgroup. Um, And then there's also, you know, the question, as I mentioned earlier, people who were included in this study were not victims of mass shootings, so trying to understand more about those victims uh, that may have and likely do have a whole other profile, Uh, you know, if you're just at a concert or or going to school or whatever the case may be and you get shot that way, what are these people's unique needs? So I think there's a lot out there to be done. I'd like to do a lot of it, but again, a lot of it just depends on on what kind of resources are available to be able to do that.
0: Given recent events, uh, one wouldn't be surprised if the CDC and the NIH started to take more of an interest in this problem. Ideally, Republicans and Democrats could at least come together in support of improving the treatment of mass shooting victims, even if there continues to be disagreement over liberating scientists to nail down the causes of these events. It looks like we're going to need it.
2: Yeah, unfortunately,
0: but yes, I hope so. Well, we really appreciate your time today, Dr. Partish, and sharing your study with us on RehabCast. This is an underserved population, both within health systems and health systems research generally, so it's important that you guys continue your work. I applaud you for doing so.
2: Thank you very, very much, Dr. Box.
0: And that does it for this November 2017 edition of the Rehab Cast. In the next edition, we'll be bringing you a window into the ACRM's annual meeting here in Atlanta. As always, we appreciate your input into the show. You can email me at docfox at gmail.com. That's D O C V O X at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to share the Rehab Cast with your colleagues.
2: This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.